This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Tonight, no comment. Any comments on the alleged uh, allegation of your uh, connection with Jeffrey Epstein? Bill Clinton and Prince Andrew duck reporters on their involvement with Jeffrey Epstein. Will the royal family ever turn over their black sheep? Hold the champagne. Headline number for non-farm jobs, 2 to 16,000, so it is much stronger than expected. The White House celebrates new job numbers, but looks can be deceiving. The almost 6 million Americans working two jobs who don't have time to celebrate. Uncharted waters. The mob that attacked the Capitol, waving Trump flags and Confederate flags, stormed right past that portrait. President Biden says he alone can save the republic. George Will on America's bitter choice between two men equally obsessed with power. Skin deep diversity. It's not just at Harvard, but a problem at universities nationwide. will expose how rural Americans get left behind while minorities from elite prep schools get a golden ticket. What will bring fairness back to education? We start with major breaking news on multiple fronts this Friday evening. First, the Supreme Court announced late this afternoon that they would take up the Trump campaign's appeal of Colorado's decision to keep the former president off this year's Republican primary ballot. There will be oral arguments next month. George Will is with us a little later on that. But we start with breaking news in the Jeffrey Epstein case. Today, we received hundreds of more pages from the case files that pull back the curtain on how Jeffrey Epstein recruited young girls and then used them and abused them for his business dealings. What remains unclear is what his business actually was. The documents refer to a young woman as Jane Doe number 3, who claimed Epstein forced her to have sex with, quote, powerful men for blackmail, which is exactly what Epstein's former lawyer, Alan Dershowitz, told us months ago. I think he had some extortion over some people. I think some people may have uh, come to him not for his great financial advice. I never thought he was that good uh, financially. I never took financial advice uh, from him. Um, and, and, and I suspect there were, there were people over whom he had something involving the sex stuff. What Epstein did with all that alleged blackmail, gets a lot murkier how he used it. His close relationship with former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak leads some to suggest he worked for Israeli intelligence. But that theory doesn't really hold up. Investigators have never figured out, or at least they haven't told us, how or why Epstein made his money, $500 million at the time of his death, to pay for the islands and the jets. It's still unclear why Prince Andrew of Great Britain hasn't faced charges or at least an extradition request. 
the documents that the FBI and others have had for years that we are now just seeing accuse the royal of participating in an underage orgy at Epstein's private island. With us now, author of The Spider, Inside the Criminal Web of Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell, Barry Levine, and royal commentator Kinsey Schofield. Uh, Kinsey, I want to start with you. Forgive me, but is it fair to say that, uh, and I say forgive me by forgive the pun, that Prince Andrew is still getting the royal treatment by not having to come to the U.S. and answer on any of these charges? I mean, you're absolutely right. It does seem like he's getting some special treatment. Uh, I think that uh, with all of the chaos that the British royal family has been through over the last three, now four years, Prince Andrew is the biggest liability to the royal family. It's not Harry and Meghan. It, you know, it, it's not some of these new books that have circulated. It's going to continue to be Prince Andrew until Why he do they keep protecting the- him? I, you know, Why don't they just I really- kick him to the curb? I really wish that I could answer that because as a royal commentator, I have to go on television every day and try to justify it. And at this point, I've hit my breaking point. I can't do it anymore. I think that these accusations are vulgar, they're vile, uh, they're criminal, and there's absolutely no way to justify it. And mm-hmm. he needs to he needs to at least have some sort of sympathy. And we see such an arrogant, you know, nasty yeah. individual who doesn't want to answer questions arrogant, about it. Know- Arrogance from a guy who could be king. I never thought I would see it. Barry, uh, you know the story better than almost anybody. As you read this document, does, does this get us any closer to actually connecting the dots of why Epstein did all this other than his own sexual proclivities and then how he made his money and what he did with this alleged blackmail? I mean, I don't think we'll ever truly get to the bottom of how he made his money. I mean, as I reported in my book, The Spider, Epstein um, was initially on Wall Street, but then he quickly moved into the private sector. He was working for arms dealers. He was pocketing money. He was a middleman in a lot of uh, negotiations, taking millions of dollars on the side. Uh, Then he began uh, doing financial services for uh, wealthy individuals uh, here in New York, Um, But I have to say, certainly, uh, yeah, this is a man who uh, was extorting um, probably not the big names that we are familiar with in this case, not the Bill Clintons or the Prince Andrews or the Donald Trumps, but but wealthy individuals in the private sector, hedge fund investors. uh, And and, and we know that there's 20 men. uh, The Wall Street Journal pointed this out two weeks ago. 20 men who uh, remain in um, confidential legal files that received sexual favors from uh, Epstein, put out uh, his young girls to these men. I'm hoping that with what's going on today, that uh, um, uh, the government, uh, the Justice Department will reopen some investigations. Senator um, uh, Blackburn is calling for the, the release of more documents. So this is good as, in, in terms of what's happening. Kinsey, I I guess I kind of understand why he would want to associate himself with Prince Andrew, um, because it gave him this air of uh, being this international man of intrigue and hanging with princes and on and on and on. Um, But at the same time, you wonder, was there a reason for Andrew to hang out with Epstein other than, for lack of a better term, the obvious? 
I mean, Leland, he was, he was borrowing money from him. I, uh, Sarah Ferguson, Prince Andrew's wife, borrowed a significant mm-hmm. amount of money from Jeffrey Epstein. So it was the contacts. It was the credibility. They both utilized mm-hmm. each other. And, you know, unfortunately, it also seems like they had some uh, morally corrupt hobbies that they enjoyed participating uh, with each other in as well. But it was absolutely the money, the power, and they elevated each other. Now, you made a great point uh, in your first answer in terms of how Andrew has been sort of so smug about his relationship with Epstein and shows, uh, forget remorse, even regret. Take a listen. Do I regret the fact that, that, that he has quite obviously conducted himself in a manner unbecoming? Yes. Unbecoming? He was a sex offender? Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm being polite. Mary, and I, I guess this gets, yeah, you can't make it up. Mary, it gets us to the next point, right, is that there's a difference between being associated with someone who was a sex offender. Because after 2008, anybody who hung out with Jeffrey Epstein was hanging out with a guy who had pleaded guilty to child prostitution. There's a difference between that and then being involved in business dealings and then obviously the next step, which is if, if you are compromised uh, by Epstein. And I, I guess there, 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 there lies the question. There are these 20 names out there. There's all, there's all this innuendo. How is it that over now 25 years, since the late 1990s when this began, that nothing's ever come out? No one's ever been able to connect the dot to this hedge fund person, this billionaire, this wealthy man was paying Jeffrey Epstein off because he had been provided with a young woman. Well, you, ha- you have to understand that after Epstein got the slap on the wrist um, uh, conviction for prostitution with a minor in, in, in Florida, uh, Epstein came back to New York. He dismissed what had happened. He said it was nothing more than stealing a bagel. And he went on to uh, continue having um, a top-notch well, I, conversations. I, 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 I get that. But even I get that. But even before that, how is he how was he able to keep if there really was blackmail with young girls going on and he would yeah. provide young women to people for sex and then blackmail them with that information. How has this been kept secret for so long? Well, you, you have to understand that uh, Epstein operated from 1994 to 2004, pretty much down in Florida, where uh, it, it was uh, a kind of a, 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 you know, a, a known secret among the people around him, as we learned today from some of the documents that emerged uh, one of the boyfriends of one of the girls uh, would receive $200 every time he brought a, a teen from the local high school to Jeffrey Epstein's uh, house there. It wasn't until uh, the Palm Beach police really launched that investigation in 2004 yeah. that uh, they began finding out that there were at least 30 girls involved. And now we know that there's been over 200. Yeah. Yeah, and, and look, and and then he got the sweetheart deal in 2008, which uh, is a whole other part. Yep. Um, more to come, obviously, uh, as you both keep working on this. Thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. The American dream means a lot to a lot of folks. The American dream, though, is not working two jobs and living with your ex-wife. That's on point tonight. That reality, though, is a reality for many Americans. In fact, today we learn more than 5 million Americans work two jobs to make ends meet. That's a record since they started keeping the statistic in 1994. People don't work two jobs by choice. They do it by necessity, much like living with your ex, which more Americans are doing as well. Housing costs, report the Wall Street Journal, 
are so high that divorced couples are still living together. It's not that the economy is so bad. It's that the administration really can't do anything about it. Worse still, they keep telling us it's great. Here's the Treasury Secretary today. There has been a lot of pessimism about the economy that's really proven um, unwarranted. They're spending in ways that suggest they're uh, happy with their financial circumstances. Perhaps spending levels are healthy, but it's worth noting credit card debt hit a record $1 trillion nationwide. People are spending on a lot of things because they have to. One of the smartest men I know says you always worry about the wrong thing. Perhaps that's the case for the experts analyzing our economy. Here is Federal Reserve Chief Jerome Powell back in December. We've had several labor market reports which suggest, again, significant progress toward greater balance across a very a broad range of indicators. You're seeing the, so many of the indicators coming back to normal. Right. The indicators all say things are good, so everything must be perfect. It's not the indicators. It's how people feel. Over the Christmas break, our friends at Axios wrote, in 2024, the economy could be remarkably, in their words, shockingly normal. Those were the same experts who predicted a stock market crash a year ago. Instead, the stock market went up 24%. Yet more Americans than ever are working two jobs and sharing a home with their ex. That can't become the American dream. That isn't fair. That doesn't work long term. We start tonight with Trish Regan, longtime business journalist, former Goldman Sachs analyst, founder of Trish Regan Intel. There is this disconnect, right, Trish, between a jobs report that seems really good uh, coming off a year where the markets were up 25 percent. We'll get to this week's blip in a minute. And then how everybody feels. How can things look so good by the numbers and then feel so bad to Main Street? Well, look, I mean, I think you have to think about the market as something that's rather separate, Leland, than just Main Street America. And the reason for that is, you know what? You got inflation going on. Traders know it. They want to actually bid up stock prices. And I would argue that today's report had some dicey things in it that make me a little bit more worried about inflation. But if I'm investing in the markets, I know, hey, it's game on, right? The Fed is going to leave rates low. And so there's a little bit of inflation creeping in. But markets, you know, as long as as long as the Fed is going to leave rates low, they don't necessarily care. They're going to keep bidding up stocks like that. So I think overall there is a, for sure a disconnect. But you got to remember that uh, there's that old adage, don't fight the Fed. And that's why the market kind of likes some of this. We think about this from the perspective, at least a little bit politically, in terms of how people feel about the economy, it's the economy, stupid, uh, going mm-hmm. back to 1992. And Joe Biden is famous always for talking about, uh, you know, working, you know, Union Joe, working class voters. And this is what he says every voter deserves. Take a listen. We have among the lowest inflation rates of any major economy in the, on this earth. We're fighting a lower cost to give folks just a little bit more breathing room, my dad used to say. The line always is a little bit more breathing room. That was December 20th. People don't feel like they have breathing room. Again, what's the disconnect between the lowest inflation rate of any major economy and how people feel? 
Well, look, I mean, I think when you have low inflation, you feel like you have more spending power, right? You get more bucks in your pocket. Like you want that low inflation. When when inflation keeps going up, you can't afford as much. It's pretty simple. I mean, every time I go to my local diner, I look at the menu. They have to like cross out the prices nowadays, right? And like pancakes are suddenly costing $15. So Leland, I mean, inflation is never a good scenario. We've seen this movie over and over and over again. We don't want that. The American people, they know it. They know what's going on. And so politically speaking, it's a disaster for Biden because they look at all of the problems in the economy and then they look at other stuff going on overseas. They look at the border issue. And what is it in some mean to them? It means we have a chief executive officer, if you would, that's not capable of really doing the job and giving us what we need and want to make us feel good about ourselves and make us feel as though we have some security for our families. How A lot of how the economy is and how people tell you the economy is how you feel. It's not necessarily yeah. what, what the numbers were. And to that end, I saw a headline about a week ago that absolutely terrified me. Uh, it was from our friends at Axios, some great reporters, and it said the, the outlook for the 2024 economy is remarkably normal. And then I thought back to the outlook for the 2023 economy, um, which was going to be terrible. It turned out the market was up 25 uh, percent. Unemployment stayed low. And I thought to myself, if they're thinking that things in 2024 could be normal, uh, you never worry about the right thing. Now may be the time to really worry. And I'm wondering why nobody is. Well, I mean, the, the train sort of left the station, right? Everybody is on board. There's a lot of group think out there, both in terms of the markets and in terms of the overall economy. Like I, I used to, it drove me crazy when Obama would get up there and say, oh, things are really bad. We have much more work to do, much more work to do. And I'm like, wait a second, I just saw the last jobs report and it's actually looking pretty good. Why don't you celebrate that? One of the things that Trump had going for him was he was always willing to throw a party, right? Like he'd get an economic number and he's yeah. like, woohoo. And he'd always see sort of the silver lining, the positivity, if you would. I think this administration and this particular president, being who he is, he's not exactly the cheerleader, right? He's not exactly putting a sunny face on things. And so it's somewhat reminiscent, if you would, of those Jimmy Carter days. And those are days we do not want to live through again. And yet it almost feels like Jimmy Carter 2.0. So even today, when maybe you can look and say, well, there are some things we could cherry pick out of the jobs report that we like. I, I still don't love it. He's not going to yeah, do it's, it's, Instead, he's going to double down on, on some of the political rhetoric that he thinks might actually play in Peoria, as they, as they say. Trish, it's good to see you as always. Thank you. Have a great weekend. Thank you, Leland. Next, CNN does cartwheels over a new study on guns and gun laws. We break down the numbers to see if changing a few laws could really save 300,000 lives. Plus, live pictures of Boston where they expect a few inches of snow tomorrow. How snow in Boston in January became national news. Winter storm on the move. At least 15 states are alert right now. Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. 
That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Now first on CNN, a new study on gun violence reports nearly 300,000 lives could potentially be saved over the next decade if every state enacted stronger gun control laws like in New York and California. And because New York, San Francisco and L.A. are so safe these days. CNN breathlessly reported a new gun control study by a gun control advocacy group claiming, as you heard, 300,000 lives could be saved in the next decade. If only, in their words, states would pass five foundational gun laws, passing background checks and or purchase permitting laws, take, having extreme risk laws, red flag laws, secure gun storage requirements, rejecting shoot first, also known as stand your ground, and end permitless carry. And to be fair, saving 300,000 lives sounds impressive and like something we should consider. Many of those laws are already constitutional. But studies have a funny way of picking convenient statistics and making assumptions, like assuming criminals will actually follow the laws. We asked our resident statistician, Liberty Vitter, professor of data science at Washington University, to look into this. Is this a little bit like all those uh, studies that say eating candy is good for you and it turns out it's paid for by the sugar industry? Yeah, I mean, come on, saving 300,000 lives, that that means that magically we won't have criminals anymore that, that shoot people? Like, come on, give me a break. This is, you know, it's convenient that obviously the states that have the least strict gun laws also happen to be the poorest. Socioeconomic status is the biggest predictor of violent crime. So it's actually the socioeconomic status of these states, not the gun laws that predict how much violent crime there is. So if these activists actually want to help the community, they should be funding the police, funding community programs, education, and stop worrying about the gun laws. Okay, so, and then we take states, and I'm, I'm always fascinated about this, because in, in Chicago, for example, where I lived for a couple of years, Illinois has very, very strong and tough gun laws, yet Chicago has enormous problems with gun violence. Then you think, say, about St. Louis, where you and I grew up. Again, uh, laxer gun laws, but they don't even enforce the gun laws that are on the books. How much of this is red states with blue-pocketed cities versus blue states where the gun laws aren't enforced? I mean, that's one of the reasons they do it by state, is to ignore what's happening in these cities. I mean, for example, even take their own data. New York and Illinois have the same level of gun law strictness, but Illinois has three times the number of deaths by gun. So what is happening in these cities, in these blue cities like Chicago, they're not prosecuting criminals. And what stops criminals? Knowing that they're going to get in trouble for what they did. There have to be consequences. And that's what's a bigger predictor than the actual gun laws themselves. It's how much trouble are these criminals actually going to get into when they do something that is against the law. Okay, so to be be fair about this, bottom states gun law strength, Oklahoma, Wyoming, South Dakota, Georgia, Montana, Idaho, Mississippi, Arkansas. I don't know. I maybe you're the statistician. I would feel a lot safer in Wyoming than I would in I feel a lot safer in Cheyenne, Wyoming than I would in Chicago, Illinois. But the gun violence folks tell me I should feel safer in Chicago because they have tougher laws. 
Well, I mean, that's the other thing. You go to someplace like Wyoming where, I don't know, there's 12 deaths a year. So all of a sudden when there's 14 deaths the next year by guns, it looks like this huge increase. Where you go to Chicago alone where there's hundreds and hundreds of deaths by gun violence. So for them to show some big increase, it has to be a lot more Hmm. people dead. So that's one of the reasons why they trick you with saying, oh, Wyoming is dangerous. Well, not really because the chances of you dying by gun are so much smaller. Yeah, I'll, I'll take my I'll take my chances walking down the streets of Cheyenne. I think there's a country song about that. Liberty, good to see you. Have a great weekend. We don't normally cover the weather. Liberty is actually traveling. She was talking about the weather just a few minutes ago. We don't cover the weather because there's not much to say. You can't change it. You have the weather on your phone, but apparently, as we've heard, it's going to snow this weekend. Winter storm on the move. At least 15 states on alert right now. Ginger has the track and timing. And who's bracing for nearly a foot of snow? Yeah, a foot of snow in Boston in the middle of winter. It's not a massive blizzard coming. It's a pretty routine storm. But somehow, and we'll get to why, this snowstorm is national news. Weekend. 33 million people now under winter weather alerts. Snow, ice, rain, and wind on top from the south to New England. Al Gore and other global warming enthusiasts might say you know global warming is bad when six inches of snow in Boston in January is news. Then again, if it was 30 inches, they would say that's proof once again of global warming. Fact is, and this is true, we just all love talking about the weather. Major winter storm system is getting stronger as it barrels across the country. We'll have the latest forecast. High winds, heavy snowfall rates, coastal flooding could be an issue. It affects everybody, and maybe that's the problem. We now let the weather affect everything. Today in Valley Forge, President Biden gave his scheduled speech for January 6th, today, January 5th, because of the snowstorm coming tomorrow. And he picked Valley Forge for a reason. It wasn't an accident. In the winter of 1777, was harsh and cold as the Continental Army marched to Valley Forge. General George Washington knew he faced the most daunting of tasks, to fight and win a war against the most powerful empire existent in the world at the time. And yet now we have gotten so concerned with the weather that the President of the United States, with Air Force One and a convoy of Suburbans, moves a speech because of a few snowflakes. George Washington didn't have that luxury. One can only imagine cable news in the winter of 1777, interviewing General Washington about whether he would delay the Army's movement because of the snowstorm. Maybe having so much time to talk about the weather is proof of just how good things are these days. Stay safe this weekend. Coming up next, two old men equally obsessed with power just won't go away. George will on how Trump and Biden are more alike than most people think when we come back. Back to our breaking news from the top of the show. The Supreme Court will decide if states can throw Donald Trump off the ballot because of the 14th Amendment and January 6th. They will hear oral arguments next month on the Colorado case. 
You'll remember the all-Democrat Colorado Supreme Court said Trump couldn't be on the ballot under the 14th Amendment that prohibits those who engage in an insurrection from holding office. The Supreme Court's decision, of course, will affect about 30 similar cases around the country that challenge Trump's presidential eligibility. George Will will be with us in a minute on that. Speaking of January 6th and the events in question, this on January 5th, President Biden began his campaign for the year with noun, verb, January 6th. It kicked off at Valley Forge because of the snowstorm, as we told you, a day before the anniversary of January 6th. I'll say what Donald Trump won't. Political violence is never, ever acceptable in the United States political system. Never, never, never. It has no place in a democracy. None. And BLM riots, perhaps notwithstanding. While Biden frames himself as the protector of democracy against an autocratic Trump, our friend George Will writes from The Washington Post, a constitution-flouting authoritarian is already in the White House. George Will is here, Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist, News Nation senior political contributor. George, good to see you. The reason I thought it was so interesting that you wrote this is because of your longstanding uh, dislike of Donald Trump and the comparison I thought was important. What, what, what is similar in how these two men view the, the power of the presidency? Donald Trump says that whatever the president does is essentially unconstrainable by any other institution. Biden doesn't say that, but he acts that way. The Supreme Court had to swat him down when his Centers for Disease Prevention and Control declared a national moratorium on evictions. They had to swat him down on the vaccine mandate. They had to swat him down again when he said, I'm going to give... Congress is going to spend it. I'm going to spend $400 billion for giving the loans of a privileged and largely affluent Democratic group that is recent college graduates. Now, I, I have no brief for either of these gentlemen, assuming that, that because they're president, the other two branches of government don't matter. Hmm. All right. I, I think this this goes to sort of exactly what Joe Biden was talking about today. I think it's interesting the language, right? In in your, he's running on the past, uh, not his past, but somebody else's past. And at the same time, you you think about this, and you know, Democrats will tell you that they believe democracy is at risk, the republic is at risk. This is from the Economist, which is hardly uh, in love with Donald Trump and can normally and fairly. Uh, thoughtful and uh, understanding of the liberal cause. The man supposed to stop Donald Trump is an unpopular 81-year-old. In failing to look past Joe Biden, Democrats have shown cowardice and complacency. And I guess the question would be, if, if the republic is truly at risk, and that is what is the issue at issue in this election, is the best Democrats can do Joe Biden? That's precisely the economist's point. They're saying if you really believe the republic is at risk, wouldn't you put up someone who's not already losing in the polls to Donald Trump? Joe Biden's numbers have been sliding deeply for two years as he has repeated this insulting argument, insulting in this way. He says the American people have 74 million people voted for Donald Trump, who's a known fascist, according to Mr. Biden. 
These 74 million people are either complicit in fascism or too stupid to know fascism when they see it. Now, you insult 74 million Americans repeatedly for two years. Some of them take it personally. Now, Joe Biden says, the republic that George Washington founded, that Abraham Lincoln led through a civil war, is going to perish unless I'm back in the White House. There comes a point where this vanity combined with hysteria is going to drive away people by the millions, as Joe Biden's polls indicate is already happening. Uh, people don't like being called stupid um, or fascist, as, as, as you point out. Um, I, I want to give you the last 30 seconds on this. The Supreme Court takes up uh, the Colorado case about, Joe, uh, about Donald Trump. Lots can be made about this being a Republican Supreme Court. Uh, are we to believe that perhaps the best thing that if it's really for the Republicans and what Republicans would do is they could also just say, we're going to take Donald Trump off the ballot and let Super Tuesday happen between Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis. And there we go. That would be a different option. It is simply wrong to say that because someone is appointed by a Democratic or Republican president, they're going to rule as Democrats and Republicans want. It is the Supreme Court's job, as the greatest chief justice ever said, John Marshall, to say what the law is. This is simply a question of what the word insurrection in Section 3 of the 14th Amendment means. Now, I think that that amendment, written one year after Appomattox, says an insurrection is what the Confederacy did with armies in the field to overthrow the government. Some Democrats around the country say, no, no, insurrection means a rabble attacking the Capitol in one day. I think the Supreme Court will swat this down and say the 14th Amendment is irrelevant. Let the people vote. Oral arguments next month. We'll talk to you during that time, and I'm sure before that, uh, in addition to before Iowa, good to see you, sir. Enjoy the weekend. Coming up next, taken hostage and forgotten by so many. The desperate plea by American families with loved ones captive in Gaza why hope is not a hostage strategy. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call. ClickGranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. In terms of the assassination of Saleh al Aruri, we have vowed to retaliate. What happened yesterday was a grave crime and we cannot stay silent. This crime won't go without punishment and reaction. The military fields and days will tell the Israelis our retaliation. That's the Secretary General of Hezbollah, who keeps talking a big game, but so far hasn't done much, certainly hasn't started a war with Israel. Even after the Israelis assassinated a senior Hamas member in Beirut, Hezbollah's response has been, well, pretty muted. As we told you in War Notes a few days ago, you can sign up at warnotes.com for free, Hezbollah's arsenal of highly sophisticated guided missiles rather than Hamas's dumb rockets put Israeli critical infrastructure at risk could be better to have the fight now on Israel's terms than when Iran orders Hezbollah to launch a surprise attack. Robert Sherman just got back from Israel's north. He's in Tel Aviv for us on what is now 
Saturday morning. Hi, Robert. Hey there, Leland. Kiryat Shmona is a long ways away from Gaza, but nevertheless, the people there certainly feel like they're on the front lines. Just two miles away from Lebanon, rocket attacks are constant. Almost everyone has fled, and those who remain have an overwhelming sentiment of enough is enough. We played kind of a chicken game. They eat us, we eat them back. We decided to evacuate the city. It's empty. We are here in the north, very afraid from uh, this uh, situation. If Hezbollah want to come inside to kill us. This right here is a home in northern Israel that was bombed by Hezbollah. One single rocket, and this is what it did, destroying the entirety of the home here. Now it's quiet, about two or three minutes, all the situation changed. A lot of missiles and boom, and uh, wow. Hamas and Hezbollah and Iran, it's really the same. And what they really want, the state of Israel will disappear. You need to speak with them only by power. A lot of power. From now, we don't peace with them. No Hezbollah, no Hamas. You want to destroy them. But nevertheless, the hope one day is there will be peace in the Middle East. Leland? Coverage of the Israeli-Hamas war barely makes it into the evening newscasts anymore. And if it does, it's all about Gaza and the Palestinians not the constant rocket attacks against Israel, and certainly not about the dozens of hostages, many of whom are still Americans, held underground in unthinkable conditions in Gaza. When asked yesterday about the hostages, all the White House says there is to do is hope. Well, there's always hope, uh, and we're not gonna stop hoping to try to get all those hostages home. Those words are especially important to Jonathan Dekel-Chen and Gillian Kay. They're with us now. Their son, Sagi Dekel-Chen, is an American hostage underground right now, somewhere in the Gaza Strip held by Hamas. Thank you all both for being with you. Um, Gillian, i start with you since you're in the United States. What's it like to watch television now in America and to hear the conversations in America uh, that have, and I hate to say this, but have sort of moved on from what your son is going through now every day. Um, thanks for having us on. Um, yeah, it's disturbing. It's upsetting. But, you know, it's also, I, I'm, uh, I'm an American. I know this is how it works. The news cycle, you know, it eats what it is sensational and then it, it moves on. Um, but, of course, it's crushing to us. Um, my stepson, Sagi, has been a hostage. All of the hostages have been in Gaza. Today is 91 days that they have been captives, that they have been starving, wounded, sick. Um, we have no information about how they are. Um, no one has seen them. Uh, no one can tell us. And um, it's horrendous. It's impossible to imagine it every day. Uh, it, it is, Jonathan. You're in Israel, and I know the perspective there um, is different. At the same time, there is this focus by the Israeli military, and I think perhaps by extension the United States a little bit, on destroying Hamas. It, it appears uh, 
from a military standpoint and a political standpoint, that the hostage deals or hostage rescue has taken a back seat to that goal. I'm wondering how your son, who loved Israel, loves Israel so much, would feel about that. Well, it's, I, it's difficult for me to, to speak on his behalf. Um, what I can say for sure is that what we are pushing for as hostage families, and, and as you said, there are still over 130 hostages being held by Hamas, is that while we all may have our opinions about the conduct of the war, uh, uh, Israel's war against Hamas, and, and I think that could be no one more than I that understands the importance of eradicating Hamas. I've lived on the border with my family a mile from the Gaza border for the last 40 years. And our kibbutz, our home, was attacked and destroyed. Dozens killed, many dozens more taken hostage. So no one has to convince me of the importance of eradicating Hamas. Well, I want to thank you both for being here. I spent four years in the Middle East as a foreign correspondent, and always uh, the nightmare was if I got taken and always thought about what would happen and what the position my parents would be in. And I can tell you the only thing that gives people, and we know this, the hostages hope, is they know their parents and their loved ones are fighting for them. And your son knows that as well. So thank you all for being here. Um, and hopefully we'll talk in better times. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. We told you about some of our reporting earlier from War Notes. Warnotes.com gives you a free look at the show every day at 4 p.m. Our insights on the most important stories of the day. Warnotes.com and subscribe for free. Next, skin deep diversity. Top colleges finally start recruiting rural students. Is it enough to bring actual diversity to America's elite institutions? NPR dropped a long feature celebrating MIT, Yale, and other elite colleges for finally reaching out to rural students. It's about time. Sixteen colleges and universities have joined STARS, the small town and rural students college network. They've agreed to visit rural high schools in exchange for financial help with travel and staffing costs. Senior Associate Director of Admissions at the University of Chicago, Executive Director of STARS, Marjorie Bentley, joins us now. Uh, Full disclosure, as a young high school student, I would have had no chance to get into the University of Chicago. You wouldn't have been interested, but I would have loved to have met you along the way. Um, help us understand how this plays into what we understand as diversity. Diversity of thought, background, values. Where does it, where, where does it fall on the intersectional chart? Absolutely. So diversity for a long time has been boiled down into one thing. And we do really value diversity, but a diversity of diversity. So that idea of a diversity of opinions and perspectives, lived experiences, that includes things like geographic diversity, socioeconomic diversity, a whole slew of different things that really, if we want our classrooms and our discussions to be nuanced, to be interesting, to, to really get into the meat of things, you need to have students on your campus that represent the whole of the nation. Um, so we're really thinking about how we create those environments and those communities. And honestly, at the end of the day, yeah. as you mentioned at the beginning, rural and small town students, they deserve the same attention and the same access as a lot of their peers. Now, you're from a small town as well. I'm wondering what response you get when you go to small town high schools. 
Yeah. A lot of it is that you don't know what you don't know. And I feel like I went through that process myself. So I'm sharing a little bit of my journey with students when I talk to them and I say, um, did you know that there are 4,500 colleges and universities out there and there's the right place for you? You just, you don't know unless you have someone kind of explaining to you how to navigate this process and what's available. So that's really the idea behind STARS is to share information to share opportunities and to help students understand the full uh, like slew of what is available to them. Got it. Well, thank you very much. I know there's some kids who are looking forward to talking to you and we'll get great opportunities because of it. Uh, Have a great have a great weekend at home. Have a great weekend. There is a big snowstorm coming, as we told you. Boston might get six inches. There was a time when people would just go out and make snowmen. But now we're talking about canceling flights. Stay warm, Boston. I'll see you on Monday. Choice is clear. Donald Trump's campaign is about him, not America, not you. And our campaign is about preserving and strengthening our American democracy. Hey, everybody, I'm Chris Cuomo, and that, of course, is President Biden just hours ago going after former President Donald Trump for his role on January 6th and as a problem in America. This going on just as the Supreme Court agrees to hear Trump's appeal of Colorado's landmark ruling banning him from the primary ballot there for his role on January 6th. Two questions.